I'm Madeline Jane Abel, and this is Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. This week, I will be talking about Diane Cannon. In addition to being the same age as last episode's topic, Jane Fonda, Cannon has also lived through different iterations of her life publicly while continuing to work. Her 2011 memoir entitled My Life with Carrie is currently being adapted into a miniseries with her as the executive producer on the project. The book's title refers to her 1965 marriage and subsequent 1968 divorce to the legendary Carrie Grant. She had a child with Carrie named Jennifer Grant, whom I was first introduced to when she had a few episode arc on 90210 as Steve Sanders' hot girlfriend. Diane started her career, like her daughter, on television. Malibu Run was the program that Cary Grant first spotted Diane on. Malibu Run, in Cannon's words, was the Baywatch of its day. Her marriage to Cary Grant was short-lived and full of a lot of gaslighting, shaming, and eventually an eating disorder, which helped her remain thin for him and gave her some semblance of control over her own life. Carrie reminds me of one of my ex-boyfriends, one who once pointed out that I wasn't really that thin. Being a young girl, I agreed with him. Diane had similar struggles as I suspect a lot of women do. Before she married Carrie, she was a stage actress in addition to television. In those early days, her career was much in the same vein as Fonda's, and they did star in a short-running play together in the 1960s. But while Jane was off in France, Cannon was being institutionalized by her family after a mental break post-divorce. The break led her out her window and up a Benedict Canyon hillside to a stranger's house wearing only a nightgown in the middle of the night. On the eve of this incident, she was scheduled to go out on a date with her then-boyfriend. He was supposed to pick her up by 7 p.m., but by 11 p.m., he had still not showed up, and she snapped and crawled out of her bedroom window, ending up in the fetal position in a stranger's home. This is fucking relatable. As a woman who has been fucked over by every kind of man imaginable, I too ended up institutionalized. A broken date just incites rage in me at this point, a pit of it that comes from my belly and burns my throat. Anyways, I will talk extensively about this time period in Diane's life when we get to the 1990 film loosely based on her experiences called The End of Innocence. Her life and career is fascinating, varied, and still ongoing. I will be focusing on her trajectory post-divorce, post-institutionalization, and pre-Allie McBeal, which she had a large role on in the 1990s. The first film she was in after her divorce, a film that earned her a supporting actress nomination, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, will be mentioned, but primarily I will focus on The Last of Sheila, a star-studded 1973 murder mystery set on a producer's yacht, and Death Trap, a 1982 murder mystery that kills her off halfway through the film. The last Diane Cannon film I'm going to talk about is the 1990 film The End of Innocence, which she wrote, directed, and starred in. 
this film is nearly impossible to find. You can't even buy it on VHS. It's important not just because it's loosely based on her life and she is miraculous in it, but because the film itself is really good. It also matters to our discussion because Rebecca Schaefer stars as the younger Diane in the film. Rebecca was shot and killed shortly after the film wrapped by a crazed fan. This film and the topics surrounding Rebecca's murder will make up next week's episode. By the 1990s, Diane was typecast as the hysterical, fun-loving slut. This role, in and of itself, is kind of a breakthrough type. It is not the dumb blonde in the same vein as Marilyn Monroe, or the tough broad like Jean Harlow. It isn't the world-weary Jane Fonda as Brie Daniels. It's something entirely new. I find it to be one of the highlights of the 1970s and 1980s. There is a cultural break from the idealized 1960s and a more realistic, if not outwardly funny, portrayal of what was really going on for women at the time emerged. The roles that Diane played, and I guess more to the point, what she brought to those roles, epitomized a range of emotions that, while often were meant to be a joke, ended up being quite poignant and meaningful to this female viewer. She was more a feminist for the new age, one that hadn't come yet, than a second-wave feminist. Even in the films where her roles were not a slut and only mildly fun-loving, like Honeysuckle Rose and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, she still embodies a complicated and wild sense of joy. In Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, she plays Alice, wife and traditional woman in a group of yuppies playing at the sexual revolution in Lennon glasses and short skirts. I find this movie deeply gross. I did when I was a little girl, and I still do upon my recent rewatch. It's supposed to highlight the flaws of the sexual revolution within marriage, but seems to casually make a case for spousal rape instead. It is also just deeply gross watching middle-aged men with money talk about their affairs. Carol, played by Natalie Wood, is the cool, fun girl. This is the real onset of that type culturally. She is the brunette who isn't just okay with her husband fucking around, but actually gets off on it. She loves everybody, but feels almost nothing. I am almost positive that this is a pure extension of male ego and not a real woman. Canon adds an unmistakable moment of ironic levity that is weighted with cruelty and a touch of tragedy in a scene where her husband is attempting said spousal rape. Her husband, Ted, played by Elliot Gould, is trying to fuck his wife right after the couple comes home from Carol and Bob's house, where they just learned that Bob has had an affair. Alice, Cannon's character, is so upset and disgusted, she is literally ill. For some reason, the whole thing has turned Ted on, and he can't read the room, or more accurately, doesn't give a fuck and nearly mauls his wife. She refuses sex, but doesn't want him to leave the house to go for a walk. The whole thing is played like a funny romp. He pulls her in, she pushes him away, but won't let him leave, and so on but it actually reads like a woman who is made ill by the disgusting behavior of her friend's husband, who then realizes that her own husband is no better. She is trapped and needing him to step up, but he only tears her down by refusing to be in her company unless they are fucking. 
At the end of it, she acquiesces out of exhaustion and a need for his company. But when she goes for her pill, which was a different animal in 1969 and required a nightly dose to be effective, she is out. The divine intervention and the hilarity of the irony tickles her to the point of hysterics. And for anyone out there who hasn't heard Diane Cannon laugh, you need to. It's life-affirming. She plays this scene so expertly. It feels so personally victorious for her. There is a hint of anger, but mostly it's unbridled joy at anything being fair for her. She is apologetic, of course, but the laughter breaks through all the bullshit we women have to play at and releases some amount of joy in every woman watching. In a few years, her laughter has been released from the confines of yuppie marriage and unleashed on a yacht in the south of France. The Last of Sheila is an industry town vacation murder mystery. She plays a slutty agent with a big mouth and a lot of nerve. This is my favorite version of Diane Cannon. She does a flip side of this role in Death Trap, where she plays a hysterical housewife with a bad case of nerves. Both are delightful, but let's start with the slut. The 1973 film The Last of Sheila was co-written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. Herbert Ross was the director. The set decorator was John Jarvis, who we have spoken about before. Costumes were designed by Joel Shoemaker. The makeup and hair department consisted of four names. The list is as follows. Mary Bredin and Elaine Schimata on hair, and Harry Frampton and Peter Frampton on makeup. The majority of the action takes place on a yacht, and it is a dreamy slice of childhood nostalgia, decoration-wise. Parker Brothers games are stacked sky-high, frills and flounces decorate garishly designed rooms, and dark wood panels line the interior of the boat's passages. There are crystal bowls filled with different brands of cigarettes in every room, and everyone always has a drink and snacks. I really enjoyed the design details of this film film. The story centers around a group of six people, all Hollywood types, all looking for work, who are invited on the yacht of a famous producer whose wife, Sheila, was recently murdered in an unsolved hit-and-run in Bel Air. The producer, Clinton, played by James Coburn, asks them there under the auspices of making a film about his late wife's murder. Clinton has a mean streak and has created what he calls a Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game that is basically a precursor to a murder mystery dinner party, but planned over a week's time and at several different ports. Each guest gets a supposedly random card with the secret of one of their fellow guests. The point of the game is to solve the identity of each secret keeper. So, for example, one card would say shoplifter, another says a hit-and-run killer, and so on. Each evening, at 8 p.m., they take a Zodiac to shore at different ports and follow the clues planned by their host till they find the answer and then the game moves forward until everyone's secrets are revealed. But they hit a bump when their host, Clinton, is murdered in a confessional on a small island. All planned, with the exception of his murder. The group then turns to finding the killer, not of Sheila, the long-dead gossip queen of a wife who seemed to be inspired by Luella Parsons, but the killer of the golden ticket producer who cooked up this torturous vacation. 
the players include Richard Benjamin. He was the height of cool in 1973. He also starred in the robot cowboy classic Westworld with Yul Brenner this same year. Benjamin plays Tom, the resident writer and husband to wealthy heiress Lee, played by Joan Hackett. She does a great precursor to Jennifer Love Hewitt in this film. Raquel Welsh plays Alice, an actress married to a British nightmare of a husband named Anthony, played by Ian McShane. James Mason plays Philip, an older director who has lost his touch and is now directing Kitty commercials. He turns out to be a child molester, but somehow he is still the hero of this film. Diane Cannon plays Christine. She is an agent who was briefly an informer to the Committee on Un-American Activities. This is played with deep hilarity. The costume design takes every opportunity to clothe according to type. Joan Hackett's Lee is in ritzy white on white linens with expensive hats and tennis chic style pleats. Raquel Welsh's character Alice looks trendy for the time period, dressed in high-end psychedelic prints and two-piece frocks that show off her flat stomach. Her eyewear accentuates the hard-to-fathom perfection of her bone structure. Diane Cannon's Christine wears tight white pants, floppy hats, skimpy bikinis, and a ragamuffin Muppet sweater, making her look awesome and slutty. I'm going to skip over the men, except to mention that Alice's husband is dressed just like the obnoxious mod squad mop he is. His white sweaters and tight jeans make me and everyone hate him. By the end of the movie, we know Lee is a drunk who accidentally hit and killed Clinton's wife, Sheila. When found out, Lee cuts her own wrists in a warm bath. But as it turns out, she didn't actually kill herself. Her ever-loving husband slit her wrists for her with delicate stork scissors. These scissors were a special touch, mainly because I grew up with them all over my house, my mom sews. I found it to be a comforting murder weapon. Bird scissors, specifically stork scissors, were first invented and used to clamp and cut umbilical cords. So the killing of the old ball and chain with such an instrument seems apt. Conveniently, the detective who is doing all the detecting is Lee's husband, Tom. But while Tom is safely playing gentleman detective, the director, Philip, realizes that Tom is behind the murder of not just Clinton, but also the stage suicide of his own wife, Lee. Realizing that Philip is on to him, the two fight it out in a wonderful ending scene that involves puppets for the purpose of avoiding fingerprints while strangling, and an intercom that blasted the sordid details in real time into Christine's sleeping quarters, where she was enjoying a romp with a crew member. Christine comes upstairs and realizing what is going on is the first to hint that it would all make a great film. So rather than call the cops on old Tom or admit to their own secrets, they all agree to make one hell of a movie about the quote-unquote last of Sheila. Knowing he is caught, Tom acquiesces to the terms of his peers. He is quickly smashed by the power players in the room and not even allowed to write the script of the crimes he committed, but is relegated to consult on any rewrites. The takeaway is that this movie has everything. Hit-and-run killers, child molesters, informers, thieves, a gay man, and so much more inside baseball Hollywood joy, including multiple murders. 
The first scene that is worth noting is when the whole gang go to shore to find the clues for the first card. They are all given a key to start. The key is the key to finding the clue. Christine latches on to Lee, who ditches her inside a silver shop. Christine is dressed in a multicolored Muppet coat and matching tight blue slacks. The Muppet sweater is fringed and from Sesame Street. Her hair is pulled back at her crown in a slightly curled casual updo. She wears thick gold hoop earrings that are both garish and expensive. She runs into the alley to look for Lee and leans seductively, without trying, up against the alley wall. Passer buyers think she is a hooker. She plays with the key while making a show of looking for Lee. Christine's look tone and absolute refusal to lower her voice in this quick scene gets at the heart of what is so exciting about this type of character she begins to embody in the 1970s. This is an unabashed sexual woman. She isn't playing for the patriarchy, isn't trying to be cool. She is all woman, and as we will see in the next scene I discuss, spilling over with feminine hysteria. The next brilliant Diane Cannon heavy scene is one in which the yacht has anchored offshore in beautiful blue waters so its guests can enjoy tanning and drinking on the deck and swimming and floating on rafts in the sea. Christine, who spent the evening fucking the host, Clinton, has made her way down to the water where she is merrily humming and paddling on a red raft on the side of the boat. She is wearing a lavender triangle top bikini with a belly chain right below her belly button. Her hair is wrapped bathtub style in a mustard yellow towel. She is wearing a pale lavender sunglasses that match her swimsuit. One of the deckhands sees her and ogles her from above as she calls, Oh, Victorio! Oh, Victorio! Anthony, Alice's dumb husband, informs Christine that the crew is having their naps. Some quick wit spews from her lovely mouth as she requests that he, quote, drop me down a tab, my mouth so dry they could shoot Lawrence of Arabia in it. He goes inside to get said tab when Clinton starts screaming at no one in particular from the water. After a few minutes, Christine's raft has floated to the tail end of the yacht. The boat's engine is switched on suddenly, and she is knocked off the raft and sucked, spiral mac and cheese style, towards her impending death. Thankfully, they don't kill off the slut in the first scene of this movie. She is saved and dragged up onto the deck of the boat. She is laughing, but in a punch-drunk kind of way. One man tries to offer her some brandy, and she starts to scream, and it sounds like she says, You hit me. Her performance continues brilliantly when she falls to the ground and asks for two lesbians and a glass of water, and then breaks into hysterical laughter. This scene is classically Diane Cannon. Her character Christine is playing at womanhood in the most delightfully visceral way possible. The insult and injury of being spiraled to death by a yacht motor while drinking a tab is kind of the height of disco-era femininity. This is definitely an example of her ability to portray female wounding in a way that isn't just reveling in the hilarity of it all, but also really relatable. I love nothing more than to see a woman scream her fucking head off because I'm pretty convinced if I started screaming, the depth of my injuries wouldn't allow me to stop. Although I might take a break for a glass of water and two lesbians. 
The last scene of the film opens on the two boys, Tom and Philip, fighting amongst themselves, actually almost to the death. Christine heard the kerfuffle and enters the room. She makes it clear that she heard everything over the intercom, understands that they are talking about the murder of Clinton, Sheila, and Lee. She then says, dictate it tomorrow when you can get a secretary. She is the one that opens the door to turn the discovery that the writer, Tom, is the killer into an opportunity to make a movie. In a classic Hollywood ending with a delightfully on-brand twist of fate, they refuse to hire the writer to write, but say he can consult and perhaps help with rewrites. The disappointment in poor Tom's face is a twist of fate worse than prison or even death. But hey, that's Hollywood. The next film up for discussion is less Hollywood and more Broadway. This one is about a playwright, his wife, his lover, a psychic, and a murder. Death Trap is a 1982 film adapted from the 1978 play of the same title, written by Ira Levin. The screen adaptation was done by Levin and Irene Wirth. The film was directed by Sidney Lumet. George Detita did the set deck. The costumes are designed by Tony Walton, who worked on Mary Poppins and the 1974 adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. He was also married to Julie Andrews, so he had real insight into buttoned-up sex appeal. He transferred that knowledge directly to the delightful Miss Cannon in this film, whom spends almost the entire movie in different iterations of a high-neck, Laura Ashley-esque, white nightgown and a Gibson girl hairstyle, excepting the scenes where she wears white pants and a creamy sweater with poof sleeves. She also has this outfit in pale pink and khaki. Fucking excellent. The playwright, Sidney Burrell, played by Michael Caine, has a disastrous opening night of his latest attempt, Murder Most Fair. After returning home to his woe-begone babe of a wife, Myra, played by Diane Cannon, he discovers that an old student of his, Clifford Anderson, played by Christopher Reeve, has written a remarkable play on his first attempt. Angry and jealous, he invites young Clifford to his house under the guise of helping him with edits on his play. What starts as a joke becomes a plot to murder this young man and pass the playoff as his own. A horrified Myra looks on as her crazed husband goes through with the killing by strangling Clifford with a large chain. Sidney forces his wife to help him hide the body. Completely spooked in a bundle of nerves, Myra is surprised by a new neighbor and famous psychic, Helga Tendorp played by Irene Wirth, coming to call at the back door post-murder. To avoid suspicion, the couple lets Helga in. She senses sadness and predicts a woman will commit a crime with one of the all-too-real weapons adorning the playwright's office walls. After the psychic takes her leave and the couple settles in for the evening, Myra goes to fetch some bourbon, but is disturbed by what she assumes is the ghost of the newly murdered man. She hides under the covers, but her husband insists she is nuts. Sure enough, a bloodied Clifford pops through the window and attacks Sidney, killing him. Myra runs downstairs where she dies from her own fear-induced heart attack soon after the chase is afoot. 
It is at this point that the true crime is revealed. Clifford was playing dead with prop blood and passable acting. The game wasn't to get the play, but to get Sidney's wife's money. With Myra dead, Sidney and Clifford are free to be well-funded lovers. The next round of intrigue begins with another iteration of literary theft. This time, Clifford steals the story of their crime for inspiration for another play, same title as the fake one. Sidney can't abide this potentially incriminating act, and a bloody battle between the two lovers ensues. The whole mess ends in both men, dead, and Helga, the psychic, as the heroine. The final twist is that Helga has turned this whole plot into her own version of the original play, which is a smashing success. We first meet Myra, Diane's character, in a scene where she is doing what all women are made to do, wait. Her failure of a husband, Sidney, is drinking alone, watching the reviews of his play in the city while Myra waits anxiously at home for him in the country. The shot opens on an ashtray filled with half-smoked cigarettes and a delightful little array of prescription pill bottles on her bedside table. Myra downs a few pills and attempts to cover herself with a white and blue quilt circa 1982. That blue and white motif is in full swing by this era. Their bed has a demi canopy curtain in blue and white gingham that matches the bedspread and the lampshade. The walls are pine wood paneled and the bedroom itself is situated inside the windmill tower of their clapboard East Hampton home. It's both country chic and medieval looking. I absolutely love the look of this, given that the 1980s was the decade I was born into, and my deep and abiding affection for Martha's Vineyard. And although East Hampton ain't the vineyard, it comes close visually. Better than the decor or its geographic location is her look. She is wearing a white cotton percale full-length, long-sleeved, Laura Ashley-esque nightgown with a ruffled bib collar. Her hair is thick and curly. She looks like she came right out of the late 1800s, like a cat house worker's angelic kid's sister. Myra gets up to adjust the volume of the television when the phone rings. She screams, jumps, and does a 180-degree turn. Clearly nerve-addled and under- or over-medicated, she answers the call. It's Sydney, her husband, reporting to her that the reviews are horrible. Tears pour down her face as he relays the message. She attempts to sound upbeat as he adds he won't be coming home until the morning. She then begins to audibly sob. The way this woman sobs with the receiver held up to her ear is brilliant. It's a real sorry wrong number inspired meltdown. Diane Cannon brings a full-throated presence to the absurdity of women's roles over and over again in her films. It's funny because of the unabashed occupation of those roles. There is zero shame, but a lot of self-awareness to her portrayals. I mean, we have all been there. And somehow, the lowly wife role in this film, when played by canon, ends up granting dignity to the women who wait, a subset of women that includes anyone who has had to wait on a man for any reason. The pathetic punching bag role is further bolstered to something in line with a late-night comedic Mother Mary in the next scene. 
Myra wakes in the morning and comes down the stairs from the bedroom into the living room. Sydney, her husband, has just walked in and is fixing himself a morning cocktail as she descends. She is now wearing an Angora wool blend floor-length lavender sweater over her percale cotton nightgown. The sweater has tiny rosette detailing above the heart, and the hemline barely brushes the ground as she walks. She has paired this perfect country housewife look with patent leather white ballet flats with a Mary Jane-esque button strap. She is surprised by the sight of Sidney and she screams, his response to which is dropping his drink. He yells at her and continues to do so as she kisses him hello and fetches a rag to clean up his mess. She drops to her hands and knees and cleans the floor as he continues to pace and yell at her. She swivels her body while cleaning so she is facing him while he has her back to her. The physical comedy of the kneeling wife who looks her husband in the eye, even while his back is turned, is high-end woman-hating hilarity. Later, after the young playwright has arrived, been killed, and the neighborhood psychic has come and gone, the couple go to bed. Myra is wearing a different, high-neck Edwardian-style nightgown, this time with a matching robe of sheer white gauzy fabric with layered ruffles at the hemline and a lace bib collar with a tiny ribbon tie at her throat. She looks like she is practicing to be the most beautifully pristine woman in white specter that East Hampton has ever seen. Her makeup is subtle, pale peach lips with a peachy pink cheek. Her eyes are shadowed in a heather-hued gray that looks unmistakably mutable, perfect for a long-suffering wife. She sits at the edge of the bed. Sydney is laying down, already under the covers, perfectly relaxed post-murder. He suggests that Myra take a pill. She says, I don't want a pill. I want a drink. She gets up to go downstairs for the brandy. She descends the darkened staircase, positively floating on layer after layer of gauzy ruffles of her nightgown robe combo. It's really quite a sight. Before she reaches the staircase landing, she hears a noise. She calls for Sydney, then turns and runs back up the staircase and gets directly under the covers. Sydney, just like the pillar of strength he is, attempts to pull her out of bed as she says, Sydney, no, and refuses to budge. He eventually plucks his poor wife out of bed and forces her through the doorway. She gets stiff as a board and won't descend the stairs. So he picks her up and plops her down every few steps. When they reach the bottom of the stairs, he pushes her forward towards the French doors. Her adorable patent leather ballet slippers betray her here because she glides across the floor effortlessly. They reach the curtain French doors in Sydney to the absolute and utter horror of his wife opens them. There is nothing outside and Myra immediately bursts into laughter, that Diane Cannon brand of laughter that borders on hysteria. Of course, when the couple get their brandy and return to their bedroom, the undead playwright bursts through the window and pretends to murder Sydney. Myra runs back down the stairs and dies right in front of those same French doors from a fear-induced heart attack. The lesson of this scene is your husband is always trying to kill you. Don't forget it, and definitely don't fetch him a drink or trust him to protect you. He is the ultimate threat to your well-being. Next week on Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, I will get into the last Diane Cannon film up for discussion, and the first Rebecca Schaefer one. 
1990 film The End of Innocence. I will also be discussing the 1988 film Scenes from the Class Struggles in Beverly Hills, which Rebecca Schaefer did two years prior to her role in The End of Innocence. The role she played in that film led to her death at the hands of a fan shortly after rapping Innocence. Her death was tragic, but led to California's first stalking laws, the details of which will wait till next week. Thank you for listening, and please like and follow this podcast wherever you're listening, and follow the podcast's Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast. I will see you next week. This is Madeline Jane Obel.